This is Channel AB3, the podcast home of me, Al Bruno III. I'm going to share with you some fiction, some fun, and anything else I can think of. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the Channel AB3 podcast. You're still listening, and I'm still learning how to do sound mixing. This episode is going to be all stories written by me, and I'm going to start with a episode of the Night Blogger podcast that was never released. I had the raw audio, but with all the tragedies of 2019, I didn't get a chance to put it together. So I'm really glad to be able to share it with you now. Please enjoy the Trevi Collection, a Night Blogger bonus episode. There are things no one ever expects to hear, and I don't care who you are or where you live. The term brony death cult has to be in your top ten. But that's what the Albany PD's chief of detectives believed caused the death of Chad Trevi. He even announced it in an impromptu press conference without the slightest trace of self-awareness. One of the first things wrong with their cockamamie theory was that Chad Trevi wasn't into My Little Ponies. He was all about my happy horses. Now, for those of you with lives and families, please allow me to explain that happy funtime horses are the go-bots of the plastic equine world. In other words, they were a cheaply made cash-in product created to flood the dollar stores for the holidays. Of course, as soon as Hasbro found out about happy funtime horses, they rained hellfire and lawyers down upon the creatively challenged Tomland Toys, Inc. And the Happy Funtime Horses line was shut down before it had barely gotten off the ground. Hundreds of the toys were pulled from the shelves and sent away to be destroyed. That meant the ones that had actually been sold or slipped through the cracks were very rare and very collectible. A complete set of the twelve different horses were very hard to find. But Chad had them all, and then some. Other toy collectors say he had gone to unethical lengths to get them. But then again, I have no idea what the ethics of toy collecting are. It all began when Chad was entertaining Les Spencer, a much wealthier Happy Funtime Horses obsessive. We don't know what was said, but friends knew Chad was eager to show off what he was sure would make his collection the envy of his peers. The showing must not have gone over well. Neighbors reported shouts and a slammed door. A Denny's waitress positively identified Les as the man drowning his sorrows in an epic stack of pancakes. Les told the police that he went home right after that, but the police believed that he then doubled back on foot, somehow got back into Chad Trevi's apartment, and killed him with a blunt object they had yet to find. The real story is far far stranger than that. Another day, another intrusion into a crime scene. It was two days after Chad Trevi met his untimely and unlikely end. It's funny how inured I've become to police tape. 
I give it about as much passing thought as you give a clicking on a terms of service agreement. These days, however, I'm a little smarter in my trespasses. I own a jumpsuit just like the ones the guys at Remediation Crime Scene Cleanup use. So now, if someone spots me creeping around the site of a violent death, they can dismiss me as some working stiff burning the midnight oil. How should I describe Chad Trevi's apartment? There was a crappy couch, a filthy TV, a sink brimming with dishes, and a bag of rank-smelling laundry near the door. Ordinarily, fingerprint powder and chalk outlines would stand out like a grim reminder of our ultimate mortality. But here, they kind of tied the room together. I spent a few minutes examining the chalk outline. The boards from the section of floor where Chad's head had been were pulled up. My sources told me that his skull had been struck with such force that it had driven fragments of bone into the wood. I'd seen pictures of the police's main suspect. And let me tell you, Les Spencer does not look like the kind of guy that could break anything larger than a potato chip. And according to Les's brother Tom, the guy was so squeamish he'd faint at the sight of a rare steak. That's how I got involved in all this. Tom Spencer is a member of the Fear and Truth message board. He posts under the name Captain Trekker, and he asked me to try and prove his adopted brother was innocent. I warned Tom that any mysteries I stuck my nose into usually ended up having a body count roughly equal to the final act of Hamlet, but Captain Trekker was most insistent. I turned my attention to the second bedroom of Chad's apartment, where he kept his collection. Now. I have to admit, my inner child thrilled a little at the sight of so many G.I. Joes, micro-machines, and teenage mutant ninja figures displayed on glass-paneled white oak shelves, but it was obvious the true gem of his collection was the My Happy Horses. The display was a four-tiered pyramid-shaped shelving structure, with the plastic toys arranged in ascending order, from the most common, relatively speaking, to the rarest. The space at the top of the pyramid was reserved for his pride and joy, Lil' Blucifer. The legend of Lil' Blucifer is an obscure one, and considering the legend is attached to an obscure toy line, I had to go all the way to the second page of my Google search to learn about it. Lil' Blucifer was designed to be an antagonist for the Happy Horses. An equine antagonist, if you will. The design of the toy had been based on the 32-foot-tall garish blue Mustang statue that marks the entrance to the Denver International Airport. Before being completed, the statue fell on his sculptor and killed him. From there, things went downhill. It was linked to deaths, madness, and the blue Kachina prophecy of the Hopi Indians. A strange idea for a cheap knockoff toy manufacturer. I guess someone was trying to be clever? Trust me. Clever people and hipsters will be the death of this world. My theory was that somehow, the curse of Big Blucifer passed on to his plastic effigies. Somehow, that cheap, hard-to-find toy had called up a supernatural force that pulverized Chad Trevi with a single strike of its hooves. It was the kind of supernatural force that could only be stopped by clever application of that most blasphemous and blessed sigil, the Sign of Ninazu. A great theory, but the problem was that the toy wasn't where it belonged. The top of the display was empty. My sources told me the police hadn't taken any of Chad's collection into evidence yet. 
Had some sticky-fingered cop stolen it? It made no sense to me. Suddenly, none of this made any sense. I decided a top-to-bottom search of the apartment was in order. First, I checked beneath the couch. I found a remote control, several empty bags of potato chips, and one sock of disturbing stiffness. The bedroom and kitchen were no less disgusting and toy-free. All I found in the hall closet was a pair of coats, an umbrella, and an indigo-colored stallion of Clydesdale-esque proportions. Blazing red eyes glared down at me as I slowly and very carefully closed the closet door. I got clear of the door just as it exploded into splinters. The demon horse strode out of the closet, the closet that was too small to hold a bicycle, much less a horse from hell or Denver. The world seemed to slow down in its proximity, the ticking of the clock, the pace of my terrified breathing, the sound of the traffic outside. The whole world had slowed down except for Blucifer. Did I mention the damn thing was between me and the exit? It reared up on its hind legs. Bloodied hooves cut the air. Its head passed through the ceiling. The solid plaster rippled like the surface of a pond. With nowhere else to go, I ran into the bathroom and in a gesture of hopeless optimism, locked the door behind me. I dropped to my knees and dug the charcoal pen from my pocket. My hand sketched out the lines, crosses, and curves of that most blasphemous and blessed sigil with practiced ease. There. I thought as I finished. Fastest Ninazu in the Northeast, Blucifer, brought the bathroom door crashing down with a single blow from its hooves. One foot came down on the toilet, shattering the porcelain like it was breakaway glass. The other foot came down dead center in the sign of Ninazu. What else is there to say? If you've seen one satanic horse go down like the Wicked Witch of the West, you've seen them all. The real kicker is what the shattered toilet revealed to me. A lump of melted plastic that was a very bright shade of blue. All the pieces fell into place then. You see, Les did go home after he'd had a bite to eat. He'd gone home to his own little Blucifer. He'd always assumed his was the only remaining one. You might wonder why, unlike Chad, he didn't brag about his amazing acquisition. It's because he understood what the thing really was and what it could do. Les Spencer wasn't the kind of man to make enemies. But over the last two years, some people he didn't like had died unexpectedly. An ex-girlfriend, a co-worker all dead from one kind of blunt trauma or another. Yes, I tried to tell the police. No, they didn't believe any of it. Hell, you probably don't believe me. Not that it matters. The Spencer family's high-priced lawyer got all charges dropped this morning. Tom and his parents are going to be bringing him home this afternoon. Wait until Les finds out that some lunatic broke into his apartment and left five heat lamps there, all going full blast. By now, his beloved toys have been reduced to goop. Every. Single. 
One. One way or another, I plan to be there when he finds out. Wild horses couldn't drag me away. Man, I loved working on that show. I think we did some great stuff, and it wouldn't have been half as great if not for the fact that I got the chance to work with Brian Manzi. The next story is read by me. I recorded it about 10 years ago. I'm going to apologize in advance for the fact that the sound quality could have been better, but I was working off the microphone built into a laptop as opposed to the fancy-schmancy equipment I have now. Please enjoy Forever Till the End of Time. I must be quick because I'm not sure how much time I have left. It all began the same week that my divorce from Deborah became final. She called me and begged that I come to the house we had shared for over a decade. Just to visit. That was all she wanted. I patiently told her again that there was no hope for reconciliation. Reconciliation, however, was the furthest thing from her mind. She told me she had uncovered an original draft of the Xanthu tablets. I admit this news surprised and intrigued me. My former wife and I were both academics, experts in the fields of archaeology and history. But while I made my living from teaching, Deborah had turned her attention to peer research. Perhaps that was why she had collected accolades while I had collected dalliances with graduate students. Curiosity won out over common sense, and the next night I took the hour-long drive to Arkham. As each mile passed, my excitement faded and my dread grew. My parting with Deborah had been angry and tearful. I knew that even now, despite everything, she still loved me. Every relationship is like that in the end with one party caring for the other more, the worshipper and the worshipped. I found that both my former home and former wife had suffered a swift decline. The lawn was overgrown, the mail and newspapers unclaimed. Deborah herself looked tired and light-starved. She had gained weight, yet her face had become gaunt. She had barely shut the door behind me before she began talking frantically, stumbling over words in an effort to tell me everything at once. I had seen her in such frenzies before, Discoveries like this cause her to succumb to a kind of madness. Regardless of such considerations, I will admit I was impressed. Her researches into the connections between Sumerian and Polynesian mythology had led her to a new understanding of the disturbing legends of Yagatha and his offspring Ub, the father of worms. Her work would force the academic world to reconsider everything it knew about the Zothic legend cycle. Each room of the house was a chaos of old books and hastily scrawled notes. There were maps of the ancient and modern worlds tacked on the walls. Patterns had been drawn along and through the oceans and continents. Instead of leading me to her study, she asked me to follow her down to the basement. A foul odor assaulted me as I descended the stairs. Deborah had somehow managed to tear up the concrete floor of the basement. The soil she had revealed was black and uneven. It reeked of sewage and rot. Before I could question her about this, I saw an object sitting alone on a metal table in the center of the room. It was the kind of idol that we had both read descriptions of over the years. The kind of idols that missionaries had taken care to destroy. Nothing like this was supposed to have survived into the modern age. I should have been excited, but instead I felt a cold dread settle around me. The effigy was no more than a foot tall and made from a yellowish stone that gleamed like it might be exuding some kind of sickly inner moisture. This image could only be that of Ub, the father of worms. Ub is a mortal among his kind, Deborah explained, raised up by Yugatha to live and crawl and know. So if he is a mortal, why were kings and shamans sacrificed to him? I backed away from her. 
afraid of the way her eyes had lit up when she said the word sacrificed. How irrational had she become? She drew closer to me, reaching out. Her fingertips were darkly stained. Can't you see? Ub ingests, but does not digest. He is merciful. Was it my legs quaking beneath me, or something more? Even now I cannot say. How could you love someone else, when I can give you forever? My revulsion turned to violence, and I pushed her away. She fell backwards into the damp dirt, and in doing so revealed what had been carelessly buried there. I have no memory of fleeing what had once been my home, or of screaming in the streets until I fainted dead away. The rest of my story is public knowledge. The authorities were alerted, and a search of the house revealed nearly a dozen bodies. Deborah and the statue were never found. Considering her final words to me, I am not at all surprised. In the weeks since, I have kept to myself, answering whatever questions the authorities might have and refusing all visitors, reporters and old friends alike. Each night, I drink myself to sleep, hoping to quell the dreams which now haunt me. Those dreams of a great, flatworm-like thing burrowing purposefully through the earth's mantle and waiting for the stars to be right. In that dream, I am bodiless and weightless. I float close enough to see every detail of its churning body. It glows with an internal bioluminescence. It is blind, yet it sees. It is called the father of worms, yet it leaves a trail of young in its wake. The middle of the thing's body is swollen and translucent. I can see the shapes that crowd there, half mummified and unmistakably human, generations of lords and wise men. This is Ub, and he sees me. I have been marked. Despite knowing this, I do not have the courage to take my own life to choose oblivion over the fate I know awaits me. Someday soon, the father of worms will reach out and drag me down through miles of earth to join Deborah, and together we will live forever in the belly of the beast. Not too bad, huh? And I promise I'm getting better. I've had practice. The next story was adapted for audio by Crystal Donahue and her team that she calls Morbid Butterfly. I love that name. If I had a band, that would probably be the name. I think she did a fantastic job, and she's one of those people that made me enjoy my own story, even though I already know everything that's going to happen. So please, take a listen to a little tale I wrote called The Eye Stalk Kid. It began a year ago, on the third day of the Altamont Fair. It's funny. We'd go to the fair all the time when we were kids. But you know how it is when you grow up. You trade the merry-go-rounds and ferris wheels for productivity meetings and marketing reports. Timothy and I had no children. <laughs> we had a hard enough time keeping our marriage and careers on an even keel. A rugrat would have been a disaster. Considering everything that's happened, I'm glad we made that decision. Like I said, we went to the fair. Timothy and I and our best friends, Chris and Danielle. We were all in our middle 30s. Our stomachs were too weak for the really exciting rides, and our minds were too cynical for the games of chance. There was still plenty to do and see, though. There were crafts, classic cars, and livestock displays, and if we stayed until midnight, there would be fireworks. And of course there was the food. Cotton candy, caramel apples, deep-fried Snickers, and gyros. Actually, only the boys got the gyros. Danielle and I stayed behind, rolling our eyes. They just got done saying how full they were, but the sight of a girl working the gyro stand fired up their appetites. 
She was barely legal and barely dressed. We let them have their fun. The girl wouldn't dress like that if she didn't want to be ogled, right? Besides, the look on their faces when they actually tried to eat those half-burnt things was worth it. We might have called it a night right there if one of us hadn't spotted the black tent. It was squat and wide with an ugly hand-painted banner that read, Dr. Tar and Mr. Feather's Cavalcade of Oddities. And beneath that, with all capital letters, was featuring audiences with the eyestock kid four times a day. Beneath that was this ugly image of a snail with a little boy's face. What's an eyestock kid? We could find out. Chris said. I've never seen a real freak show. Me either. My husband replied. It was ten bucks a head to get in. The babushka-wearing woman working the ticket booth frowned when we asked her to break a hundred and asked if we had something smaller. We didn't, so she transformed the act of making change into a minor tantrum. Does your boss know you treat your customers like this? Danielle said. I am Dr. Ta. She shot back. I am the boss, Smartes. We should have turned back right then, told her to take her cavalcade of human oddities and shove it. But I think we all thought her performance was a put-on, a part of the show. All our stories of visiting the freak tent would begin with the part about the crazy lady working out front. The inside of the tent was lit with clusters of Christmas lights. Canvas partitions divided one part of the tent from the other. Each of those cramped fabric-walled rooms held its own display or performer. The first section of the tent was just displays. Pictures of other sideshow displays from years gone by. Taxidermy, two-headed calves, and misshapen fetuses preserved in jars of formaldehyde. Everything was streaked with grime. From there, we moved on to an equally grimy waxworks display called American Monsters. I was always a fan of true crime stories, but if not for the signs besides each figure, I wouldn't have been able to tell their Lizzie Borden from their Ted Bundy. By the time we had shuffled past nine serial killers and one sitting president, we were thoroughly bored. In the next part of the tent, there was a banner that proclaimed, Behold the Unicorn, Creature of Legend. The unicorn, however, was nothing but a deformed goat with a single horn jutting from its head. It bleated at us and glared from a single misshapen eye. None of us, or any of the other people that paid ten bucks to get in, were impressed. The line moved forward again, bringing us into the presence of human oddities. Howard Huge, Nora the Tattooed Lady, and the Amazing Reginald. Nora the Tattooed Lady looked to be in her middle 70s and had to walk across the stage with the help of a cane. Howard Huge looked no heavier than the subject of your average reality show, and he never looked up once from his smartphone. The Amazing Reginald scowled contemptuously at the audience as he bloodlessly shoved needles through his arms and face. By the time the amazing Reginald's performance had reached the glass-eating part of the show, we were all feeling like fools. We'd been parted with our hard-earned cash, with the promise of seeing something grotesque up close and in person. 
We were rubes. Timothy turns to say something to me. An apology, I'm sure. When a frail-looking man in a Hawaiian shirt stepped out from behind a hidden fold in the tent. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen. He coughed wetly for a few moments before continuing. I am Mr. Feather. I hope you have enjoyed our little production. I hope we have brought a little wonder to your otherwise humdrum lives. Danielle exchanged a glance at that. A thousand sarcastic comments on her lips. There was another long fit of coughing before Mr. Feather could speak again. But now you stand on the precipice of a true revelation. At this moment, in a specially prepared aerobionic chamber, the eye-stock kid and his hermaphrodite harem await. <clears throat> <clears throat> No one knew what he was talking about. Aerobionic chamber? Hermaphrodite harem? It was getting warm in the tent, and there was an aquarium odor filtering into the chamber. Mr. Feather drew the curtain back, revealing an empty pegboard wall. There were voices chanting behind that wall, wet whispers of Alleluia repeating over and over again. After some more coughing, then Mr. Feather spoke again. For a mere fifty dollars, you may gaze upon the ice-talk kid. You may hear one of his famous sermons and risk his blessing. Fifty dollars? Timothy said. Jesus, you want more money? <clears throat> the ice-talk kid and his disciples have specific needs that require specific payments. <laughs> Mr. Feather explained as the hallelujahs grew louder and louder. But you will find him worth every penny. Let's get out of here. We've been suckered enough for one night. Danielle agreed. Actually, I want to see this. Me too. Chris nodded. Oh my god, don't be a fool! Timothy blushed again. Honey, you're making a scene. And everyone was watching. The human oddities. Mr. Feather and all the rest of the people that had been suckered into the tent. Feeling self-conscious, I said. Do what you want. I'll be waiting in the car. Frowning but undaunted, Timothy and Chris reached for their wallets. And after giving me a guilty shrug, Danielle joined them. I left them to it. Half an hour went by, then an hour. I had expected them to come slinking back to the car by then, but I was still waiting and alone as the fireworks began and the parking lot began to clear out. Eventually, despite my annoyance and despite the fact that I was sitting up straight in the driver's seat of my car, I fell asleep. The sound of Timothy scrambling into the seat beside me was what woke me. He was shouting, Go! Get us home! Where were you? I asked as Chris and Danielle got into the back. What took you so long? We have to go home. Without the rows and rows of other cars and local carnies and orange vests, it was hard to navigate the dark, empty field that the Altamont Fair were used for a parking lot. Chris and Danielle were turned around in their seats the entire way to Route 146. When speeding towards Albany, Danielle made eye contact with me in the rearview mirror. It was too dark to be sure, but she looked like she'd been crying. 
We should have listened to you. I felt sick to my stomach. What happened? Tell me what happened. We can't tell you what's happening. It's still happening. Timothy had his face buried in his hands. When he spoke, his voice was muffled. I'm sorry. Chris started laughing. The sound was almost a scream. Timothy barely spoke to me the next day. He said he wasn't feeling well, so I let it pass. When I got home from the office, I found him lying under the bed covers and mumbling. He wasn't running a temperature, but his skin was clammy to the touch. Since I had no sick time left, I decided to sleep on the recliner. The next morning, I found him cocooned in the blankets and sheets. Everything was soaked with sweat that had a swampy odor to it. Timothy wouldn't speak more than two words to me, but those words were... Love you. I started to worry he might have gotten food poisoning from that gyro slut. He could barely lift his head off the pillow, so I had to call him in sick to work. His boss was really pissy about it, but there's no way Timothy could even drive himself in, never mind about actually doing any work. Four times... I tried to call him four times during the course of that day, but he never answered. Every call went to voicemail. I tried texting his cell phone, but that was no better. Right before I headed out to my last meeting of the day, I gave Danielle a quick call to see how she and Chris were doing. I barely recognized the voice that answered, and the only reply to my question was a garbled, That night, I came home to find the refrigerator door wide open and a month's worth of groceries either half-eaten or left to spoil. Timothy was laid out on the couch, stains radiating out from him. The TV was turned to a channel that used to show nature documentaries, but was now nothing but wall-to-wall -wall reality shows about rednecks. I knew for a fact Timothy hated both. He smiled thickly at me. What's wrong? I knelt beside him and stroked his forehead. His flesh felt like the skin of pudding. What happened to you? The phone started ringing. A premonition made me want to ignore it. But I didn't believe in premonitions then. Hello? A watery voice said back. No one called my husband Tim except for me. And even then, only when we were making love. He'd always been a Timothy. Ever since childhood. Who is this? Sorry. Sorry, 
mirror. Danielle? I couldn't recognize the voice. I'm still not sure it was really her. But who else would it have been? The voice whispered. Timothy gurgled a reply from his spot on the couch. Then he turned onto his side and vomited. With each heave of his stomach, he called. I wanted to call 911, but my fingers wouldn't move. Not when I knew. The worst hadn't happened yet. Another premonition. His stomach emptied. My husband rolled himself off the couch, landing on his stomach with a grunt of relief. His back was swollen and bowed outwards. The voice from the phone said. Then he put his face down in a puddle of his own sick and started slurping. With every slurp, the lump on his back quivered. Stop it! For God's sake, stop it! And he did, turning towards me to show a face that had become a mask of bile and eyes that were even more askew than before. Then his eyes changed. The eyes I had looked into with love and anger and indifference so many times over the last seven years began to shift, slipping out of his skull onto stems of writhing pink muscle. The last thing I saw before I fainted was his gaping eyelids brimming with tears. When I woke up hours later, Timothy was gone. He'd left everything behind. His wallet, his clothes, his wedding ring. I called the police and found out that they were already coming to see me. Chris was dead. They weren't sure if it was a suicide or foul play. And Danielle was nowhere to be found. The police didn't want to hear about Dr. Tar and Mr. Feather and the ice stock kid. They had already decided for themselves what had happened. It was an affair. My husband and my best friend. Chris had found out and it had driven him to suicide. I'd found out too. And my broken heart had sent me into a delusional state. Now it's a year later and the Altamont Fair is back in full swing. And this letter was supposed to reveal everything. It was supposed to tell you why the black tent 
might have been harder to find this year, even though it was almost doubled in size. I was going to tell you what I saw when I paid my hundred dollars to see the eye stock kid in the aerobionic chamber. I wanted to write down, word for word, what he said and reveal to you the rites my body performed as my mind screamed for it to stop. But now, I know I can't. It was hard enough for me just to write all this. I have to hit the keyboard of my laptop with bruising force just to make the letters appear. My fingers won't hold their shape and my eyes can't focus on what's right in front of me. And there you have it, three very different yet somehow similar stories. I really hope you enjoyed them. Our next episode will have my review of Phantasm IV, as well as an adaption of a classic Edgar Allan Poe story. I do hope you're enjoying this one-episode Stories by Me, the next episode Stories by Someone Else format I'm going with here. Please let me know what you think. I am always open to constructive criticisms and adoration. I can always use more adoration. And now, here's Miss Sherry with the credits. The Trevi Collection, a night blogger bonus episode, was written by Al Bruno III. It was produced by Al Bruno III and Brian Manzi. It was performed by Brian Manzi. Forever Till the End of Time was written by Al Bruno III. It was read by Al Bruno III. The Eye Stalk Kid was written by Al Bruno III. It was adapted for audio by Crystal Donahue. Opening podcast theme was by Josh Bruno. Closing podcast theme was by Nicholas Gasparini. Our unpaid scientific advisor is Adam J. Thaxton. The credits were read by Miss Sherry. Please consider supporting the podcast via the link on our Anchor FM site. Reviews really help more people find the show. Please consider giving us one at the podcast service of your choice. And now, to play us out, here are some funky fresh beats from my future brother-in-law, Cameron Bruno. Funky fresh beats? Really, Al? I cannot believe you made me read that. Trap lane. Trap lane. Okay, put these holes in the cone. Punch a got that Italian lemon nice, seven nights, fuck it right. Uh-uh. Italian, stallion, Rocky rounds cut off all the lights. <gasps> he breaks the mic every time he never writes, fans saying, oh yikes. <laughs> Lightning strikes, but you're still waiting for the thunder, right? Hundred nights, hundred acre forest gum type. When he running, wind the pussies out on a pedal bike. Dick Van Dyke show on the late night. Ready Cougar up in the game, always cause fright. Up freight train when it rains, clog up the drain. Oversaturated chain, jack and bush, I'm right off the planes. No plain Jane, Mary Jane flow with the coke. I'm breaking like the main Holy man, critically acclaimed Unchained, unclaimed But he not contained Amphetamine Moving like a different strain Oh, dip 
longer than the whooping crane in a different brain. Dust it off like an ankle sprain. He in a different lane. I get a dragon slang. She calling me major pain. Dope's right from the veins. Medellin plane dropping off the cane. They think that he moving, but he got out the game. He left them junkies of a baggage claim. New suffix coming in like the fangs. Three chains, buddy Poncho as he self proclaims. Honcho told me to chill, but he in his domain. Popping just like a pill. They shop a good will. They wanna know how the fuck he still in still kill bill. Went to the field, but he wouldn't prescribe this. So we rub the CVS up in the bill. He's heating up, heating up just like a grill. Why they falling down the hill like Jack and Jill? Too much skill. He's skinning fish even with a chimney gills. Out for the mills, not mills and woods, but he know how to get them bills. He had eight jobs, that's how the doctor got ill. They tried to come up with me, but the shit just went downhill. I told the ride like my pickle deal. Roller cuts the upper motion straight out the windowsill. He feeling like Pablo or Neymar when he was in Brazil. Peter Pucker acted like a ninja with a hundred kills. Will bend you by your will, cause it ain't free till you cop a deal. That's it up in the pills or the cookie crumbles. Feeling like Undertaker in a Royal Rumble. Won't fall, better stumble off the wax. He got so high that he mumbles. Words turn to jump, but he'll never fumble. Got the pack running like a running back. He'll run it back to L. Trouble lucky free at last. I know my boys left me, but it's in the past. They say he got gas. So when we pull up in the mask, I'm talking Halloween, cause we follow bats. On the rattle taps, better go and check your stats. I'm feeling like Corleone, get it for the cash. Throwing bows like the wings, cause I don't fuck with flats. I could take 50 bats. Still be dripping like Rick when he got on the mat. Leave him bloody like an old Mexi pet. Take a taxi cab, Uber at the track. He said he missed Hancho, but they know where he at. It ain't Christmas, but Pancho still know how to rap.